Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Today, of course, we are so excited to have Pat Morrison. She's here with her second book, Don't Stop the Presses. And um, Pat Morrison is an LA icon. Uh, she's the voice of the city in so many ways. Um, with six Emmys, 11 Golden Mics, two Pulitzer Prizes, and a hot dog at Pink's named after her. She's just like, she's, she's doing it all. <laughs> um, her longtime work at LA Times and KPCC has been opening eyes, changing minds, and influencing opinions for years. Uh, this book in particular is um, so timely and really some, a beautiful book. Um, it's gotten very well reviewed. It has been called Witty, Big, Skillful, Vivid, Remarkable, Funny, Vital, Startling, Essential, Entertaining, Deep, Lavishly Designed, Tinged with Nostalgia, and a Candy Store for the Eyes. Let's please give a warm round of applause for Pat Morrison. Thank you to Carrie, and uh, I see that uh, the bookstore is continuing a fine tradition because when I first discovered this bookstore, it was called Chatterton's, and it was run by a woman named Carrie Slattery. So clearly, only people named Carrie can be in charge here and uh, and uh, take over in this in the case of this particular bookstore, which is is doing what which is doing what all the best bookstores should really be doing. And that's exposing you to things that your algorithm is not going to be doing. Your algorithm gets you narrower and narrower focus. A bookstore like this opens your eyes and opens your interests and opens your, your curiosity. So thank you so much for, for not only doing this, but for being here. So um, I loved all those adjectives. There's, it was almost like a thesaurus, and I was waiting for the clunker in the middle of them. but. Thankfully, it uh, it didn't come. Now, I kind of feel like I'm missing an opportunity. I could put LA Times subscription cards on every chair, but I know that you guys are already readers, so I don't have to do this. So, um, early on in my book, I talk about how people get their information. And how many of you get news from Facebook? Okay, I see you guys are so smart already. But you ask an audience, how many people get your news from Facebook? Yeah, Facebook. How many get your news from Google? Yeah, Google. They, you don't get your news through that because they don't have reporters. Facebook does not have anybody at the Pentagon trying to see how well your money is being spent and whether or not soldiers are being well served by it. Google is not in Sacramento reporting on the state of the California budget or following the California elections. Where does that news come from? It comes from real journalists who, for the most part, work at real newspapers. Um, a friend of mine in our Washington bureau years ago during the end of the Carter administration, when interest rates were so high, farmers were protesting. Farmers, if I'm a farm kid, so I know how this works, you borrow money at the beginning of the season, you buy the seed, you buy what you need, then you bring in the crop, and then you pay off the loan. But the interest rates were going so high so quickly, the farmers couldn't pay off. So they sent the tractor cade to Washington to converge on Washington to make their protests visible. Block bridges, block access. People, of course, were furious. And a woman my friend saw while he was reporting on this got out of her car, shook her fist, and said, 
I don't need you farmers. I get my food at the grocery store. So this is the dilemma that newspapers find themselves in. People think, I don't need newspapers. I get my news through Facebook. I get my news through Google. And so we'll find out, especially in this book, that this is not the case. It has never been the case, and it isn't going to be the case. So I want you to imagine, you sit around, you walk just up and down the street here, and you see people sitting there looking at their phones. Well, this is what it was like 100 years ago. Instead of phones, it was this. If you took a phone out of every pair of hands and put a newspaper there, that's what it would look like. This was the sinking of the Titanic. This was as long as 200 years ago and as recently as 30 years ago in the United States. Now, this country was built in part because of newspapers. Newspapers had a voice during the years in the run-up to the revolution. Those voices were controlled by the British government, which is one reason we had a revolution in the first place. The royal governor of Virginia thanked God that there were no unlicensed printing presses because he said, learning has brought disobedience. What, you think? And the British Crown told the royal governor of Massachusetts that great inconvenience may arise from the liberty of printing. Oh, yeah. And the colonies said, well, bring it on, because these newspapers were so vital to the revolution. There was a publisher who took his printing press out of Boston because it was a target. Printing presses were a kind of weapon, and the government knew it, the British government. He was there at one of the battles of Lexington and Concord, and you can read his account today, and it reads like in such a contemporary fashion. Here's a quote from one of the British officers. Disperse, you damned rebels, disperse. Can't you just see that coming off the page of a newspaper today? So as the nation grew, newspapers pushed it, newspapers pulled it out into the central part of the country and beyond, because to be considered a real town, you had to have a real newspaper. And in some cases, towns had two or three for a town as small as a thousand people, and people read them all. The printing press itself, as I said, was such a big deal. It was a hallmark of the advent of civilization and culture. When one arrived in Missoula, Montana in the late 1880s, they stopped it out of town. It was on a wagon. And before they brought it into town in this procession, they tied red ribbons to the ears of the horses that were drawing the wagon because it was such a grand event. And in Colorado, there was a town that was near Boulder that was so jealous that Boulder had a printing press that they sent this posse over one night got the editor drunk and stole the printing press under his nose and hauled it back to their town. But the dedication of so many of these early publishers was really phenomenal. In 1879, there was a tornado near Delphos, Kansas, like the one you see in The Wizard of Oz that took Dorothy away, except you didn't end up in Oz. It was somewhere out in the trees near Delphos. But that editor managed to find enough pieces from his printing press, enough pieces of lead type that he put together on a stump in the town square, an edition of the Delphos Herald to tell everybody in town what was going on. Now, to me, that's, that's the spirit of newspapering. The picture that got me really started on this is the one I'm about to show you. Um, it's the newsroom of the Honolulu Star Bulletin. It's not long after Pearl Harbor. And this is what these people are doing. This is the circumstance under which they're working. Blackout windows and gas masks. Because who knows when another attack was imminent. I know journalists who have been killed in the line of duty. All of us have been tear gassed. All of us have been threatened. My friend George Ramos held a, had a gun held to his head right outside the Times building during the riots. And he essentially said, I was in Vietnam. Yeah, you go ahead and see what you can do to me. 
this is what journalists are willing to do to do the job of being the public's intelligence service for you. Um, now, over more than 200 years of our history, as I said, thousands upon thousands of newspapers, some of the smallest towns, you'd go into these little towns, and I've seen the pictures in my research, you see the storefronts are three, two, three stories big, right? And it's like a Mel Brooks movie. Behind them is like this crummy little store. But the storefront is so impressive, like this one, the Waco Examiner. I mean, you know all those guys aren't like the staff of the Waco Examiner. But you know they like say, hey, come on, we're all going to get our picture taken. Let's come over and look important here. But look at the commitment it made to have a presence on the civic landscape there. So I love that picture for so many reasons, including that one. Um, as you have heard, not every newspaper did an honest and forthright job. There are some publishers who use those newspapers just to promote their business interests. Um, there are publishers who use them for political interests. Uh, Warren Harding the President of the United States, until he was in office, published a newspaper in Ohio. It was the Marion Star in uh, Marion, Ohio, and didn't let go of it until after he was elected president. Some of their ambitions would not be acceptable today, and some of the coverage would not be acceptable today. The way that newspapers didn't used to challenge the official version of things, that lasted for much too long, especially when it came to covering crime because victims of crime were so often people of color whose voices were not heard. And this is how, I'm going to sh what I'm going to show you is a picture of a very rare object. The picture itself is very rare, the object probably non-existent. This is what people who covered the Los Angeles Police Department, the police reporters, were allowed to carry. They carried badges, official LA police badges that identified them not as sergeant, but as reporters because they were out there taking down the police version of almost everything. And not until the early 1960s, not until the civil rights movement, did you see a change in that relationship where the official version of events was no longer enough because it was clearly no longer true. So there have been rocky relationships and healthy rocky relationships between authority and journalists ever since then, sometimes to the great dismay of authority, depending on who you ask about that. Um, this, these were the 1930s into probably the late 50s, early 1960s. Um, newspapers, of course, had to remind people that they're there, they're out there, the promotional items like pencils. Um, I love the outdoor thermometers. The, if you saw the outdoor thermometers that they gave away in, in places like Duluth, Minnesota, the t upper temperature was about 60, but it would go to 60 below. Whereas here, the LA Times had a big thermometer on the beach at Long Beach and it went up to like 100 degrees and only to like zero. So that showed you the regionalism. But this is one of my favorites. This was handed out in the 1920s. In the 1920s, we had the Scopes trial, where John Scopes, who was a school teacher in Tennessee, was prosecuted for teaching evolution, which was against the law in Tennessee. So his case riveted people. H.L. Mencken wrote about it. It was covered on the radio. It was covered, or the news stories were carried, in so many papers across the country. And this is one, a little souvenir to remind you of the Hastings Tribune in Nebraska at that time. A little about this big, but you turned it over, it was a mirror. Everybody reads the Hastings Daily Tribune. Everybody reads every newspaper. There's a sense of grandeur and also some wit about it all. It gave the subscribers something to remember them and something to smile about. Um, let me take a little bit. 
not drinking the water in Flint, Michigan. Hooray. Newspapers told you about that too. The great newspaper wars of the late 1800s coincided with the technology that allowed more newspapers, bigger type, bigger circulation, and they were in some cases scandal sheets. William Randolph Hearst was an editor whose father was a publisher whose father gave him the San Francisco paper when he was a kid. He was born right after the Civil War. Um, and one of his own editors described a Hearst newspaper as a woman running screaming down the street with her throat cut. <laughs> now, I think that's wrong because they left out naked woman running down the street with her throat cut. But so that kind of sensationalism buoyed circulation. And then you had on the other side his rival Joseph Pulitzer, a generation older, immigrant from Hungary, who came here, who served in the Civil War, and who wanted to be more dignified and more decorous in his reporting. When his newspaper once ran a story with a headline in what we call second coming type. We call it that in the newspaper business because that's the size headline you would run if Jesus were back, right? So his, his newspaper runs some scandal story in second coming type. He goes down to the print room and tells his, his print room foreman to melt down all that type because it's all lead type, remember? The guy didn't do it because he knew he would need it again. And Pulitzer had to cave and had to give in and himself had to start running that kind of headline and that kind of story to keep up. Now, the technology of photography and typography also changed newspapers. During the Civil War, you had Matthew Brady who was out there taking pictures after the fact on the battlefield. Also, he rearranged the bodies. He was known to move things around for the sake of composition. But think of it. You could have, even a week later, papers like the Harper's Weekly, you would have a photograph of the battlefield arriving on your doorstep, maybe at the same time Johnny's letter home came there saying, you know, we're making a great charge, all these boys are terrific, and then you're looking at bloated bodies on the battlefield. A lot of that revolutionized Americans' thinking. But by the 1920s, with photography in particular, you could reproduce it very well, very quickly, and in high numbers, and even at that, they were able to micro the technology sufficiently so that a man, a photographer from Chicago, went to New York. He had a little camera about this big. He strapped it to his ankle and dropped his pant leg over it. He had a little bulb that he had run up through his pants into his sleeve. And if he squeezed the bulb, he could get one shot. Shot. He pulled up his pants leg, pointed his toe, and shot. It's the old Polaroid thing, right? Point and shoot. Except this was in the electric, um, in the death chamber in Sing Sing Prison, where a woman named Ruth Snyder was being put to death. And this man smuggled in the camera and took what I think is still one of the most harrowing pictures of the 20th century. You can see how the electricity coursing through her body is affecting her. There she is, strapped, muffled, to, and uh, tied to that chair. It was a revolutionary picture, and of course that man never got back to that prison, and prisons never allow photographs, and uh, never allow photographers in again. Um, I mentioned the Civil War. I think covering wars is one of the most sacred responsibilities of journalists, because you've heard that phrase, lives and treasure. American lives and treasure. How are American lives being spent? How is American money being spent in the name of us? what is going on in these places all over the world. And so 
The Telegraph, which debuted during the Civil War, made it so easy to get news back to the headquarters, back to the newspaper, that during the Battle of Gettysburg, stories about what happened on the first day of battle were being read on the battlefield by men who were fighting on the third day of the battle, thanks to techniques like this. This is a news cart out behind the lines at a battlefield during the Civil War, selling copies, as you see, Philadelphia, New York, and Baltimore newspapers. So that instantaneity of the battlefield and the reality of the battlefield really changed a lot about war, and it really sobered up American journalism for a number of years. In the 1970s, when the United States was fighting in Vietnam, the, the access that reporters and photographers had was unprecedented. And if you have seen anything since, you haven't seen anything like it since. The embedded reporters, the control, the censorship, the keeping people distant from the battlefield, whether it was the Grenada invasion by Ronald Reagan, who let no reporters accompany the American forces, or what was going on in Iraq in both of those particular wars, how reporters were kept back, how it looked like just a big video game for a lot of people who were watching it at home. But then there's this picture taken by my friend, Nick Ott at the Associated Press. And this really, this landed on breakfast tables across America on a Sunday more than 40 years ago. Do you remember this picture or have you seen it since? This little girl, Kim Fook, napalmed in error, one of her cousins was killed, running down a road in South Vietnam. And after Nick took this picture, he took her to a hospital, a field station in the hospital. She ended up becoming a doctor. She trained in Cuba and ended up living in Canada. But as a kind of forsaging of Donald Trump, when Richard Nixon saw this photograph, as we now know from the White House tapes, he turned to his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, and said, you think this is fake? Imagine faking that photograph. It was one of the turning points of the war in Vietnam. Now, one of the chapters I address in the book is fakes, frauds, and F-ups. Not only the fake stuff that, reported, that newspapers used to do. In the 1840s, the New York Herald ran a story about a massive escape from the Bronx Zoo where the lions were killing people. There's the chambermaid lying in the street, her throat torn out, her cap askew, parents rushing to the schools to take their children home. And only after reading thousands of words did you find out at the bottom we're, we made this up and we're just doing this so you can see whether the zoo is doing a good job with its security or not. Well, the police stations were flooded because they thought this was real. People came to the police stations for shelter. Cops were going out in the street looking with their guns to shoot down these tigers who were killing the residents of New York. But at least it proved that people took newspapers seriously. But one of the best screw-ups of all time, and I can say this because it's the Chicago Tribune, um, it's so memorable, it has become a classic, and it is, well, I'll let it speak for itself. President Harry Truman, Chicago Daily Tribune, jumping the gun a little bit, back when they didn't have daily polls, he held this up at a train stop, at a whistle stop in St. Louis, Missouri, and it's a classic. And everybody now equates their mistakes to Dewey defeats Truman. We do have um, corrections, of course, that we run all the time in newspapers. The latest one I had to write was misspelling John Stewart's first name. I spelled it J-O-H-N instead of J-O-N. Killed me to have to run a correction. 
Um, the New York Times had a correction this year, which was one of my favorites. Do you remember the story of the dog who plunged into the lake and rescued the deer who was drowning? You might think, well, he was doing a good deed or he was, you know, looking for his lunch. But in any case, the New York Times had to run a correction because it wasn't a golden retriever, it was a Labrador retriever. However, the correction said, but he's still a good boy. <laughs> but more soberingly, we have seen in recent years, especially as regards the civil rights movement, the Lexington, Kentucky Herald leader not too long ago ran pages and pages of the photos and stories it did not cover during the civil rights movement because some newspapers ignored it entirely, what was happening in their own backyards. Some of them made fun of it. So the Herald leader wrote on the front page before it got to all these other photographs, quote, it has come to the editor's attention that the Herald leader neglected to cover the civil rights movement. We regret the omission. It's a phenomenal statement, a phenomenal admission. Um, so Nowadays, if you don't like what you read in the paper, people will call and cancel their subscriptions. Usually they'll renew it like two weeks later, but they want to make the point, and I don't blame them. But under the British control, this is what that version of canceling your subscription look, looked like. 1734, the British government ordered the public hangman to burn every copy of a newspaper that had been printed by a man named John Peter Zanger. John Peter Zanger printed something that was true about the royal governor, but truth was no defense. And so he was brought into court on libel charges, and his attorney essentially argued nullification. He looked at the men in that jury box, they were all men then, and essentially appealed to them as Americans and said, why can they do this to us? Why can we not tell the truth about the people who are in charge of our lives? and our fortunes and our sacred honor. That phrase came later, but you know, you get the idea. So now John Peter Zenger then becomes the first hero of American journalism, and here's the burning of his newspapers by the public hangman to make a point down, down there by the harbor. Now, the jury, of course, acquitted John Peter Zenger. They carried the lawyer off to a tavern, and everybody got drunk and had a swell time, but the British government was shaking in its boots. And less than 50 years later, the British government would be on its way back to Britain with its tail between its legs. Now, the man who was the first martyr of American journalism, and Abraham Lincoln called him this, was a man who had set up several newspapers already in Missouri. He was anti-slavery. And he wrote anti-slavery stories and anti-slavery editorials. They mobbed his paper, they destroyed the printing presses, they burned him out, and he went elsewhere and set up again, three times in Missouri. Finally, he moved across the river to Illinois, thinking things will be better in Illinois. But it didn't happen that way. He even sneaked his newspaper, his printing presses in under cover of night, but they found him out, they stormed the building, they torched the building, and they killed this man, Elijah Parrish Lovejoy, right there. Years later, they dragged the river and they found the remnants of his printing press that had been thrown in by this mob that murdered him. And it's now in a museum there as a symbol of what can happen if the freedom of the press is not observed and honored. And we think of that as something that happens in other countries or in our historical past. But all you have to do is talk to any of us, to my colleagues on the campaign trail, and see that same kind of screaming ferocity that is out there now, the spitting on reporters. My friend Katie Turr and some others had to be escorted out of a building by the Secret Service because of the threats that people in that crowd were levying against them. Um, 
it's not all doom and gloom. You know that the newspaper has sports, it has the funnies, it has crossword puzzles, and all sorts of things that they used to divide up and say, here's the women's section, you know, here you are, little lady, here's the recipes for you, and here's the sports section for dad, and here's how kids can build a birdhouse, um, or, you know, make a paper airplane out of newspaper. Um, but sports, sports won the day. Now, we all love the Dodgers. The Dodgers have been here longer than they've been in Brooklyn, but I had to give them a little bit of love here with this picture. It was in the Brooklyn Eagle, a very important newspaper in its time, the Brooklyn Eagle, when the Brooklyn Dodgers won the pennant, 1941. Very happy bar full of guys cheering, which looks just like something you could do today, except for the strange ties and the weird head on the guy holding up the newspaper, I have to say. I think I would buy that man a neck if I, uh, if I had the option. They, they, they went on to lose the series to the Yankees, but at this point they don't know that. So I will, I will leave this moment frozen in time. These are the kinds of newspapers, as you see, that people buy as souvenirs. They want that tangible evidence. This really happened. You can't Photoshop 600,000 copies of a newspaper. That's part of the value of the print issue of a real newspaper. Um, I mentioned the crossword puzzle. This was the first crossword puzzle that ever ran in a newspaper. It's 1913. It was invented by a man from Liverpool. So 50 years before the Beatles, Liverpool gave America something else. In this case, it was called the word cross. You can probably find it online and see if you can actually solve it. This got to be so popular, it's been in newspapers now for more than 100 years. Some people subscribe just to get the crossword puzzle. My friend Harry Dean Stanton, the late Harry, would do the crossword puzzle every day. And if he didn't know the answer, sometimes he would call Ed Begley. And if Begley didn't answer the phone, sometimes he would call me. So I had to do the crossword puzzle just in case Harry called. But you look at this, people were so enthralled by this that the New York Public Library finally had to say, look, we can't get our regular patrons in because all of you people are coming in to look up the answers. So they had to like have a little limit to the number of people who could come in every day with their crossword, uh, crossword puzzles. Um, the cultural reach of a newspaper cannot be underestimated. No, I guess it's overestimated because you just look, look at a Coca-Cola bottle, you look at a light bulb, you know what that shape is. You don't even need the label on it to see what it is. The same thing is true of a newspaper. If you see the shape of a newspaper, you know what that object is. Now, the idea of newspaper print as a cultural trope extends far beyond the newspaper itself. Um, Kate Spade did a line of bags made out of newspaper. You could buy a newspaper for a dollar, but her bag was $300. John Galliano did a newsprint line. If you see big type in that in old English gothic-y looking, you know that that's the banner of a newspaper. Now, the very first bikini, 1946, France, July 4th, sticking it to the Americans, named after the place we started testing atomic bombs. Newspaper fabric. And guys, okay, I know you're trying to, you're just trying to read it for the headlines. <laughs> but those are French newspaper headlines, 1946, and she's holding the box that the bikini will fit in. And thus launched another fashion trend. It's, I mean, it's, think of the other places we could have been exploding this. It could have been the, the swimsuit called the Vanuatu. 
so I don't think that would have worked quite as well. But, but if a newspaper is an object, it's really the Swiss army knife of objects, right? If you ever lived in the Midwest, if you ever drove in the East, if your car is stuck in the snow, you just put newspaper under the, the tire, right? If you want to train your puppy, there's the newspaper. There's a fly buzzing around, there's the newspaper, you know? And it's just a multifunctional device. And even used in fashion. They used to, in home ec classes, make you design something out of newspaper. And look at the people at this masquerade party. They're having such a great time with the Oregon Journal. I think that is money well spent on that newspaper look there. And just right across, the, and what I love is the hand, the nail varnished hand reaching in there, it has that Dolly-esque quality. And the woman on the far right with the Robin Hood hat on too. Just this so clever and so cleverly done, but even if you're not in a party kind of mood, if you've been arrested, if you don't want people to see you as you're being hauled off to the pokey, a newspaper can do the trick too, right? And of course, this is one of my favorites, a photo from 1962 in Wisconsin. I call it Nunbrellas. <laughs> Who knew it got that sunny in Wisconsin, right? So my challenge to you, you just try doing all this with your iPhone, and you come back to me if you find you can do all of this. Um, the way that newspapers also penetrated our culture is that they inspired movie makers. They inspired board games. Here's one example. I must have found a half dozen board games relating to newspapers. Here's one. Five Star Final, the great newspaper game. This got me excited. I mean, I'm in the newspaper game and it got me excited about this real assignment, sensational scoops. And look at the guy there. He's got his assignment clutched in his hands. All those editors sitting there smoking in the newsroom with their hats on in the newsroom. This was inspired by a 1934 movie starring Edward G. Robinson, which had to be one of the meanest newspaper movies ever. Boris Karloff plays a reporter who also pretends to be a minister to get people married when they're not really married. They commit suicide. It's really a sinister movie. But the movies just endure. We saw Spotlight 2015 win Best Picture, a true story about the people at the Boston Globe. So I will ask you, if you think of Cary Grant, Gregory Peck, Humphrey Bogart, Ronald Reagan, Don Knotts. What did these guys have in common? The one role they all played was newspaper man. So, yeah, I mean, think Ronald Reagan, who actually did do the kind of run into the newsroom and say, I've got a story that's going to tear this town wide open. His wife, Jane Wyman, also played a newspaper woman named Torchy Blaine. So it was a trope in the 30s and 40s. This was a role that you gave to people because they, you could make a reporter do anything. It didn't have to be true, but they would do anything. I think my Smith Corona is nice. They put a Smith & Wesson in these guys' hands and sent them out on the street with a gun. I don't know many reporters out there with a gun. But here is a classic movie, newspaper movie, the poster from Deadline USA starring Humphrey Bogart, one of the best newspaper movies of all time, because there at the end of the movie is, is Humphrey Bogart on the phone to the mobster whom he's accusing in tomorrow's edition of murder. And the mobster's saying, what's that racket? And Bogie holds the phone up, gives a nod to the press room foreman, roll the presses, and you hear womp, 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 womp. And he comes back and Bogie says, that's the press, baby. The press. And I, I saw this movie at a special screening and it was so exciting 
This is a movie, it's 60 years old, so exciting. Even though I had popcorn in my lap, I jumped up, sent the popcorn flying, not endearing myself to other people in the audience, but it's such a popular movie for so many reasons. And there are great movies, there are terrible newspaper movies, but this is one I would recommend. Now, this, this has a newspaper in it, this next image. John Gavin, an actor who did not play a newspaper man. In fact, he later became Ronald Reagan's ambassador to Mexico. But while he was playing Julius Caesar in Spartacus, he took a break to read the Wall Street Journal. And so if you want to know why the Roman Empire was on a sound financial footing, here's what you can thank, for, thank him for. It was John Gavin there. What I discovered when I was doing this book is that the work of small town papers and weekly newspapers, you cannot cannot give them enough thanks. When I write something, I may get nasty emails, I may get you know, a few dirty comments from somebody on television, but I'm likely not to run into people in the grocery store who are going to say, you're full of it. But when you work for a little paper, you may run into, the, in the grocery store, the mayor, who's also the principal of the school, and you just wrote about him with his fingers in the till of the city council money, but he's also the principal of your kid's school, and the grades are coming out, and how is he going to react? Is he going to take it out on your kid? All of these things for small town papers, like this one that we see here in the Mountain West of the United States, where they made their money with printing jobs so they could afford to run the newspaper, done with neatness and dispatch. And these small town newspapers are absolutely heroic. I read about uh, uh, one in the... Um, uh, in uh, Kentucky, where it was called the Eagle, and they started writing about how the local cops were rousting kids and mistreating kids, local kids, and the parents didn't say anything. Well, they got threatened with arson by a guy who turned out to be a local cop who did set the newspaper on fire, and the next edition of the paper, they called themselves the Screaming Eagle, and the line, it still screams right underneath. That's brave stuff. That is bold stuff. In Charleston, West Virginia, the Charleston Gazette Mail, reporter Eric Iyer won the Pulitzer Prize last year. This is a guy who still works the night cops once a week, but an investigative reporter who won the Pulitzer Prize in this small paper because he found out that over the course of two years, a town of 392 people with one drugstore was shipped five million doses of oxycodone. Five million doses to one drugstore with 392 people. He busted open the books on Big Pharma. Congress held hearings. Big Pharma said, we're not going to do this anymore, we promise. That man literally saved the lives of the people in his state with his reporting. That's what local newspapers can do, and that's what we're losing. The big newspapers, the ones that cover Washington and New York, those newspapers are still going full bore. It's the little newspapers, the ones from your small town. And when people ask me, what can I do? What one thing can I do? for newspaper journalism. Subscribe online to a small town paper in a place you think is important. Maybe it's Oklahoma, maybe it's Michigan or North Carolina, maybe it's a place you came from. An online subscription, maybe it's $100 a year. You're going to do so much for that paper. If you and everybody you know can just do one of those and reach out, that will help to keep those papers going. Now, you've all read Harry Potter, right? Harry Potter has a newspaper, of course, the Daily Prophet. I wish the LA Times front page could have those moving pictures that the Harry Potter newspaper had. But everybody wants a newspaper. You had a newspaper in your school, right? There's a newspaper for labor organizations. There are newspapers at corporations. 
And even in Manzanar, even in the internment camp, there was a newspaper. And here's the picture Ansel Adams took of the free press, which wasn't exactly free, as you can imagine, but it did have its own newspaper. Every community needs some kind of vehicle to express itself and to make its voices heard. Now, we have not always done a good job about that, and I'll get to that as I wrap up here. But this, this tangible presence of a newspaper, whether it's Harry Potter reading the Daily Prophet, or the headlines like Obama wins or Trump wins, that's what people want to see. That's the proof that it's really happening. This is one of my favorites. It's two pictures with the identical headline about the identical news event. It's about all you need to describe it. But let me, you can guess which one of these guys is my favorite. The guy drinking beer. Nazis quit April 1945. How many people would find that in their grandfather's closets as they went to clean out the closets and think, wow, Grandpa, look, yeah, you were there for that. You were alive for that. That's the tangible evidence. Now, headlines have a language all their own. They use words like taught for child and slain for killed and nabbed for kidnapped. Nobody talks like that. Do you ever imagine you know, saying to somebody you see on the street, hey, did you hear about that tot getting nabbed? Or the bank robber who was slain? But those are the kinds of words that headlines have used as a shorthand, and Americans got very used to them. Here is one particular image with that kind of language. Slain, Kennedy slain, which is another one of those headlines that people find in their closets over and over. That, by the way, is the Herald Examiner, which went out of business in Los Angeles in 1989. At one time, we had five, six, seven newspapers going on the streets of Los Angeles all at once. Now, the best headlines are the briefest. Um, there's one from the Honolulu Star Advertiser. You remember in January, the false alert, oh, the nuclear missiles are coming from Korea, you have 37 minutes to live. Oh my God, it took them 37 minutes to correct it. Here was this brilliant headline in that paper. With the button, the button is the killer, so to speak, the false missile alert. But for connoisseurs of headlines, and there are many, the best headline of all time came in the New York Post. It was about a mutilation murder in a strip joint, and this is it. The guy who wrote that just died about six months ago. I hope he got a big bonus. And just for comparison's sake, for the difference in tone, the New York Times covered the same crime. Their headline was, owner of bar shot to death, suspect is held. Okay. I appreciate the gravity of this, but man, oh man, this is fantastic. One of the chapters in the book is called Unseen Faces and Unheard and uh, Unheard Voices because so many people were sidelined from newspapers, excluded from the newsrooms, excluded from the columns of the papers, uh, people of color, women, and that finally began to be remedied in the 1970s, in the 1980s, and now it's picking up steam. One of the pioneers is right here in Los Angeles. Her name is Aggie Underwood. She was the first major, the first city editor of a major newspaper, and here is Aggie at work at the Herald Express with the baseball bat on her desk, which she said was to keep PR people in line, but, you know, I think she wielded it a little more broadly than that. And in this next photo, you see Ethel Payne. She was called the first lady of the black press. She worked for the Chicago Defender. And she covered the White House for a while, and her questions made Eisenhower so uncomfortable that they supposedly tried to find a way to revoke her press credentials. Here she is interviewing black soldiers in Vietnam about their experience of a war that affected black and Latino 
um, soldiers disproportionately from the rest. We also were the home here in Los Angeles of Ruben Salazar. He was the first major mainstream Latino reporter. He was at the LA Times. He was killed in 1970 during the Chicano moratorium protests in East Los Angeles. A 10-inch long tear gas projectile fired through the door of the bar where he was in, inside recovering from tear gas, hit him in the head and killed him. It was classified, I believe, as a homicide, but was never pursued. Um, the Latino project that won the Los Angeles Times the Pulitzer Prize years later included a reporter who had worked at the Stockton Record in the 1970s, and she talked about a document, documentary excuse me, about going to the Stockton Record into the library. We called them the morgue, where all the old stories were kept. And she's looking for the file on Latinos. She looks under L's, it's not there. She looks for H, Hispanic. She looks under M, Mexican, can't turn it up. Finally says to the librarian, where will I find this? She said, oh, it's under W for wetbacks. This is in the 1970s in California. So we have come a long way, but we spent a very long time not doing very much at all. Oh, yeah. um, so the rap on newspapers is that we resist new technology, but it's not true. We love new technology. We love anything that can bring more and better news to people. The Telegraph during the Civil War. Now, even Rupert Murdoch didn't see the internet coming, so I can't really blame us, but we're early adapters. The telephone, we're gonna take it. They, they have um, uh, helicopters that would go up and take photographs and cover news stories. And here is the massive printing press of the Los Angeles Times. This is called a Ho Press. Do thousands, tens of thousands of copies in less than an hour, hundreds of thousands eventually. This is the kind of technology that allowed the news to get out faster, edition after edition. Because you go to your cell phone and you'll re you know, refresh and refresh to get a story. That's what these street editions were for. A new edition, in some case, every few hours at the Los Angeles Times. I remember when I was an intern there, we still had what we called the afternoon stocks edition because after the stock exchange closed, that's how people could find out what was going on. Now, of course, you can find it on your phone. At the dawn of radio in 1922, this paper in Portland, Oregon, the Oregonian, already had its own radio station, as many newspapers did. There it is, the Oregonian, Radio KGW. He is out there broadcasting out of this old car, well, it wasn't old then, at a time when you thought, oh, newspapers, they're so old fogey. This was almost 100 years ago that this was happening. And right here in Los Angeles, Channel 11, KTTV, you know what that stands for? Times Television. K Times Television. The LA Times owned KTTV. And then we had to sell it. And you want advance? Here's newspapers by air. Glenn Martin, the pioneer in aviation, flying these newspapers from Fresno to Madeira. See them on the wing there? I just hope he didn't like drop the stack from the air. I hope he actually landed first. You know, otherwise, it's like it's the highest flying newspaper boy you're ever going to see. But here's one of my favorite pictures. There's still the old-fashioned retail way of selling newspapers. This is Bunny Duchesne, a former Chicago showgirl, now out there hawking the print, baby. She's got her cigarette, her rhinestone bracelet, her lipstick. She's got the whole thing going. I love Bunny. Show you very quickly the newspaper palaces. The LA Times is moving from the building that it has occupied since 1935. These newspapers were built to impress. We are here, we are on the civic landscape. This is the Seattle newspaper. Their globe was on top of the building, the Post Intelligencer. That globe now belongs to the city of Seattle. They haven't put it anywhere yet, but they're working on it. But even as you saw with the Waco Examiner, and here you see in Buffalo, Wyoming, 
There are presents on the main street. Over to the right there you see the Buffalo Voice. Plenty of parking for your horse out front. And up in Victorville, the Victorville Press, these small newspapers that deliver the news right there on the main street, the Victor Press. Come give us your advertising, come tell us your story, come buy our newspaper, and we'll cover. These are the people who cover the pancake breakfast, the fundraisers, the obituaries, the prep sports, that are the bread and butter and the life of a small community as well. At the opposite end, you have the great Herald Examiner building. This one, designed by Julia Morgan, who was Hearst's architect, who also designed Hearst Castle. It's soon to be made over into condos and retail, like the LA Times building. And up in, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, I love this building. It's that streamlined, modern glass brick building that was the La Crosse newspaper, the La Crosse Tribune. Look at that, isn't that fabulous streamline? But it's now a crouton factory. I can't complain, I like croutons, but still. So. We've seen too many pictures like this over the last 15 and 20 years. This irresistible headline in a Columbus, Ohio newspaper as it was closing, the Columbus Citizen Journal. It's, some of them is because afternoon newspapers are overtaken by television. Some of them is because, well, people aren't buying newspapers. And the more that newspapers get muscled out, the more that leaves room for government and PR to fill that gap with its own unchallenged stories about what's going on. Thankfully, in the last few years, certainly the last few months, we've seen people appreciate the First Amendment, appreciate what it is that reporters and newspapers and journalists do. So instead of picketing us, they're pro-First Amendment out in front of the New York Times. And I absolutely love this picture, that free speech and the free press and the Bill of Rights matter to people. So there is hope for newspapers. Um, I'm hoping that... Um, that what we're going to see is uh, more like this. This is our future reader. That's not me on the bottom. It says Mike's cousin. I think I would. I think that's the sports section. I would have been looking elsewhere. But I think that in a paradoxical development from this administration, we're seeing people appreciate news, real news, curated news that's fact-checked, that's cross-checked, and that comes from someplace that you trust. And I'm hopeful that that's going to continue because you have to have this pushback against authority. As I said, we are the People's Intelligence Service. We are looking in places you can't. We are spending the time you can't spend to find out what's being done in your name around the world and right here in your own town. So thank you all for being here. I appreciate it, and I will be happy to answer your questions. Yes, so... Yes, let's... Until in 1960. Um, what I think is the most iconic picture in the history of newspapers... Oh, you know, I didn't see that. I'm sorry. Um, but I, the Bunny Duchesne thing was just a one-off. It, it wasn't published far and wide. Um, but I think there were lots of Bunny Duchesne selling newspapers like that around the country. Um, and so it wouldn't be surprising that one of them inspired that kind of, of role. So, And you had another... Oh, the, oh Time Magazine?
Okay, the, uh, my area of expertise is newspapers, not magazines, so I couldn't tell you what the most iconic cover. What's a paradox about Time Magazine, though, is the person of the year, which is originally man of the year. It wasn't the best person of the year. It was the person who had the biggest influence on the world. And so you saw Hitler on the cover of Time Magazine, not because he was a great guy, but because his influence was so massive. Stalin or Churchill or something like that. It isn't a popularity contest. It was about the biggest, you know, most, most earth-shaking newsmaker. So to me, that's the biggest misimpression about Time Magazine. And you remember in the, like, airline catalogs, you could buy the cover of Time Magazine, Person of the Year, and it was a mirror. So if you looked in, it could, I'm Person of the Year. And we know who gets off on that kind of thing. He's about 3,000 miles from here. So, uh, yes, here. Good. The downtown news, a grand paper, yeah. It's it's all you know what what people don't think of in this country is this country is not just an ATM machine. You don't just take things out of this country. You have to put things back in. As citizens, we have an obligation to be informed. That doesn't mean you have to be a news junkie like me as part of the job, but you talk about the layers of information you've got. You've got your local paper, you've got the downtown, you've got business papers, so you can put it all together in your head and see how this machinery is working because governance is like a big soap opera. They're just not as good looking, you know, and they don't wear low-cut clothes. But these are the characters who occur time and again. Why do you see this name popping up and again? What's this particular councilman's interest in this project? What's going on? That's what your local and regional newspapers can do for you. And as I see them gutted, San Jose, the Mercury News, covering one of the most important regions in Silicon Valley, is being gutted by the company that owns it, not because it wasn't making money, but because they want to take the money out of the newspaper. Newspapers are still money makers, not as much as they were, but they can make money and they need the reinvestment too in the kind of reporting that you are talking about. So it's vital that as citizens we have to do our jobs too. We can write till the cows come home, but if you don't read it and you don't react to it and take it into account, you're abdicating your responsibility. The world wants to come to this country. We need to show the world that we value this country in how we approach our being citizens, responsible citizens of this country. So there's my little soapbox. Somebody else? Yes. Thank you. I'll repeat the question. Ah, political cartoonist, LA Times op-ed page. And I think some of you may have seen that the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette just fired its cartoonist because the publisher, and believe me, that has been noted and remarked on. So that's not gone unnoticed. But political cartoons, I think, are particularly important now. Paul Conrad won three Pulitzer Prizes. You may remember Paul Conrad at the LA Times. Uh, Nixon hated him because he did the most incredible anti-Nixon cartoons, including one of Nixon nailing himself to a cross. <laughs> he also did not like Mayor Sam Yorty, who precedes many of you here in this room. But Sam Yorty ran for President of the United States, and Yorty ran, I think that, that Yorty may have sued over this one, but there was a Conrad cartoon of Yorty standing among a stand of trees in New Hampshire, and 
like maple trees, and the caption was, the sap is running again in New Hampshire. So, and, and, and Conrad, I knew Conrad, I was so lucky to know him, and if, if there was a cartoon you particularly liked, um, I did, there was one of the state of California, when, when California became the first state to elect two women to the United States Senate, it was the silhouette of California with a high heel, like in that little cut-in place there. And I went down to his office and I told him how fabulous it was, and he gave me that cartoon. It was a privilege I didn't want to abuse, but I have a, a couple of Conrad's cartoons. But he said, the more words you have to have in a, con in a cartoon, the worse a cartoon it is. It should just like, damn, nail it right there, so to speak. No, that's fantastic. Lou Wasserman's death. Wow. He was, yeah, he was that kind of guy. Right. Yeah, and he was he was so visual, and and he always said, you know, you would think about it for seven hours and then take fifteen minutes to draw it, because it was the thinking process, and as it is with so much writing, ninety percent of what's in my notebook may not make it into the story, but it shapes the story that I end up writing, and that's true of all good journalism, I think. Another question? Yes. Um, I, I think that uh, everybody has a different task. Um, if there's a local columnist in Texas whose name I can't remember who does a bang-up job. Um, there used to be Dennis McCarthy used to be in the Daily News. He was terrific. The, the, those local columnists are great. Al Martinez, our great old friend at the LA Times. Um, Jack Smith, if you remember Jack. Jack could sit and write about his backyard and that was the story of Los Angeles. And so there's some columnists who will get down into the details of a city council budget, and then there are others who will say, look around us, this is what the world is like. Um, Jim Murray was so brilliant, because even if you weren't interested in sports, all of a sudden he would take you to Rwanda and write about how the textile industry in Rwanda was affecting their Olympic team. And you were just wrapped by this sort of thing. That's what a good story can do for you. A newspaper story is like a passport. You can sit there with it in your hands and travel all over the world. It's the same with the books all around you here. They will take you to places that never existed. They will take you to places you can never go because they're in the past. They will take you into the imaginary future. But a newspaper takes you to the real world. If you're sitting up in Encino and we're writing about the riots, we want to bring you face to face with what's happening in your city. Encino is part of Los Angeles. Downtown, South Central, part of Los Angeles. You may not get there, but a newspaper story can take you there virtually and make you meet the people who are your fellow Angelinos. So any columnists who can do that sort of thing are the people who have my admiration. So, yes. Yes, the letters editor sits right behind me, so I know what you... <laughs> it's like... They're very good writers, yes. Thank you. I will tell Paul, who is the letters editor. 
it's like it, to me it's like the British papers like the Telegraph and and the Guardian who have the most brilliant obituaries and the most brilliant letter writers the readers yes yes they do they read from all over and that's to be exposed to those ideas. That's, that's re and, and you know, Pascal, Blaise Pascal, uh, wrote a, a long letter to a friend once and went on pages and pages, and at the end he said, I'm sorry this is such a long letter, I did not have time to write a short one. And if you ever try to write shorter rather than longer, you'll see how hard it is. And so those letters are exceptional in their brevity, and their, yeah, I will absolutely do that. Anything, yes. Oh, no, 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 no. I, when I was teaching at USC and, and we were talking about some of the news evolution things we talked about here and I talk about the Vietnam War, they would give me exactly that line of whining. Well, that happened before I was born. I said, the Civil War happened before I was born too, but I know about it. Hello. Exactly. That is not an acceptable out. Maybe it works on a game show, but in real life, it goes back to that civic point I was making. You cannot make those decisions unless you know what's going on, which also includes the stuff, maybe your grandfather went to World War II. Maybe the reason you live in the part of the country you do is because of the Civil War, and your family got the hell out of Dodge. All of those things are so important for us to know. You don't have to know the exact years, and you don't have to know chapter and verse, but you have to know the big arc of our history. Other countries do. Why should we abdicate that? And ours is so much shorter. Yeah, it's easier to do. And you can look at the, at the money and cheat and go, oh yeah, that was the guy, the guy on the dollar bill. Anyway, anything else? You mean the name of a newspaper? Well, one of the best is, um, there was the Memphis Press Scimitar in Temis, Tennessee, which is really good. But I think the New Orleans Times-Picayune has to be one of the best. And a lot of these names ended up as hyphenated names because newspapers folded or co-joined their forces. But uh, the Memphis Press Scimitar has a special place in my heart, even though it's no longer on the landscape of newspapers. But thank you all. I'll be happy to sign your books. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.